scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel of St. Luke um, at the very end of uh, the crucifixion story uh, before the resurrection story. Let's share in God's good word together. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever driven Turner Turnpike? <laughs> if you're like me growing up around the state, this is a road you know too well, particularly when it's construction time. And as you drive back and forth, a lot of times it's no big deal, you know, just, just do the thing. But at other times, you find yourself behind two semi-truck trailers that both have limiters on them, and you can't get by them. There's nothing you can do, nothing legal you can do, right? You're just, you're just behind them. It was on one of those occasions that I looked in my rearview mirror, and about, oh, I don't know, 500 yards, I see this car, this very fancy car, coming up behind me. And I'm like, what is this Yahoo doing? Clearly, there's a semi-truck in front of me. There's, I can't go anywhere, he can't go anywhere. It didn't stop them, they just kept coming. And coming, and coming, and coming, right up on my tail. Which I did not appreciate. Like, man. And driving, driving, just... And, and, of course, as these things go, the, you know, the semi-trailer goes up slowly, doing 56, while the other's doing 55 and a half. You know, and you're just waiting forever. And it pulls over, and I'm, I'm just looking in my mirrors, because I'm a safe driver, right? I'm trying to get over. And all of a sudden, I see these lights, and honks and like you better get out of my way i'm like wow i get over and he just zooms by me I'm like man that dude is a menace to society and then later we actually come up to one of these construction pieces and i see that same car fly by me on the right to get around everybody where they want to be and after the traffic sort of, you know, came undone and we were back on the flow, I looked up and what normally causes me great consternation and fear brought me great joy. <laughs> Lights and sirens. And I thought to myself, so who might that be? And sure enough, it was that same car getting what I imagined to be a very large ticket. What is it about us? So I take... Joy, like, "Uh uh-huh, that's right, you got some justice right there. Mm -hmm. Yep, you know it, you did it, you're paying. And I would feel much better about that story if I didn't have this story, which is, if you go on up past the Turner Turnpike, on up by Grand Lake, uh, as many of you all know, this is the Grand River Dam and Spillway. Um, If I also like to say, we used to say to the kids, hey, we're going to Disney, because that's Disney, Oklahoma, uh, around that area, Disney, Langley, and... um, we, we used to go up to a place when the, the boys were smaller, and um, there's a little Y that um, was a yield sign for, I don't know, most of my life, until it wasn't. 
They changed it to a stop sign. And, and so the thing is, you know, if you go someplace long enough, sort of on autopilot, you, you just do what you do. Now, the reason it was a, a yield sign is because you could see about a half a mile at this Y. You could see everything coming, which there was about a car every other week coming down that road. And it just was never anybody there, and you'd look, and then you'd go on. So it was a great yield sign. And so we were coming back. The, our boys were probably late uh, elementary school, early middle school. And um, we're, we're coming home. It's late. We're coming back for church. And um, I, I do what I always do. I look. There's nobody there. I go, and there's the siren. Woo! And I look back, and it is a police car from... Mayberry. I mean, like one little thing. I, I think it's like, you know, a souped up 1950 T-Bird kind of thing with a, you know, like a star on it. And it was hysterical. And I'm like, okay, I'm surprised that thing runs. And um, then I see this car door open. I'm looking like I figured he'd be at the window by now. And I see this boot. And another boot. And then the door closes, and there's this big hat, this big mustache, handlebar mustache, and a belly that's almost to my rear bumper. He's pulling up his pants, and he starts coming. Ching, ching. It was like, if, for those, forgive the reference for the younger people. It's like an old Tim, Tim Conway skit. Just like, ching, ching. He gets up to the door, and, and I've, I mean, I, <laughs> to tell you how much time this took, like, I had my driver's license, my registration. I'd written a book. But by the time he got up there, and he goes, he goes, before he could even say driver's license, I gave him my driver's license. And he's like, you know what you've done, John? My, my name's John. My given name is John, uh, John Mark. And uh, I was like, um, no. I didn't see any traffic. He goes, that's a stop sign. You treated it like a yield sign. To which I said, didn't it used to be a yield sign? He goes, yeah, we changed it last week. No. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then, if the sauna up hadn't been enough, change, change, change. I don't know how long it was, but it, I mean, it felt like forever. Because, you know, you're trying to get home. And um, I get my very big ticket. And... Um, I, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, really? I mean, there's nobody out here, but, you know, they got to make their money some way, I guess. And um, I'm driving off, and from the back seat, I hear, know what you done, John? <laughs> Chantel was so afraid I was going to kill those two. But, I mean, what are you going to do? I did it. I deserved it. I mean, I did. I did the crime. I was, I was, there was, I was guilty. I got what I deserved. You know, like the other guy got what he deserved, right? As if those are the same. Maybe they are in your mind. Maybe they're not. So we have this thing in our culture, in our lives, that we really have kind of come to believe that you get what you deserve. We even have little sayings about it, like, um, you made your bed, now what? Lie in it. Yeah, some people say sleep in it, but you know, most of us say lie in it in Oklahoma. Or, or we have other sayings. You, you may hear this at school. A lot of folks, y'all went back to school this week. And you'll hear somebody, somebody will do something good or somebody will do something kind of, you know, off page. And, and a friend of yours will say, well, you know, don't worry about it. what goes around. And see, so you know this stuff. 
You know the stuff. You, you get what you deserve. And the problem with this is, of course, that it just becomes so normal in our thinking and in our phrases that we actually start to assign credit to these things to Jesus or to the Bible or to our faith. And he didn't say any of it. Didn't say any of it. So we're in this series called It's Just Not True. Simple sayings that are simply untrue. And this week we come to the phrase, you get what you deserve. Will you say that with me? You get what you deserve. Problem with that, of course, is we want other people to get what they deserve. We want mercy. Right? We want them to have justice and us to have mercy. And you don't get it both ways. Now, One of the problems with this series is that if you look hard enough, you can find a scripture that sounds almost true. And you've got to really work at it to kind of figure out why it's not. So Paul, a number of these are Paul's writings to specific churches in specific areas. And so this one actually comes from his writing to Galatia. Um, Paul writes, God is not mocked. Say it with me. For you reap whatever you sow. Well, that sounds a lot like you get what you deserve. But it's not. It's not. Let me show you. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh, yeah. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit, yes. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. Talking about harvest, you know, you you actually do reap what you sow. So if you plant an apple seed, what might you expect? An apple tree, right? Beautiful, wonderful apples. You... Right, you, you, you sow and you reap. Like you plant apple seeds, you don't get lemons. Right? I mean, there, there are some things that are true in the way the world works. But sometimes you plant the seed, you get an apple tree, and the worms come. And the birds come. Or a flood comes. Did you reap what you sowed? Is God mad at you? Is that what you deserve? But you did sow apples, apples and apple seeds, and you got an apple tree. See, see it's, it's easy to just kind of roll it all up into one. It's actually quite different. Paul's not saying you get what you deserve. He's saying be careful how you live your life because most of the time that's how, that's what gets yielded. And that's true. So we're going to talk more about that here in a second. Uh, but if you're with us for the first time, I, I want to just remind you where we've been. The week number, number one, we said, is it true that doubting is dangerous? What's the answer, friends? No. 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 As a matter of fact, doubt doesn't disqualify you from being blessed. We see people all throughout the Bible that have all kinds of doubts, and God blesses them anyway, because it's about God's character, not about your competency. Right? And so when it comes to faith and blessing, faith is moving forward with what God's calling you into, even in the midst of your doubts. Really, every biblical character that we see, as they move forward in God's life for them, they've got all kinds of doubts, and God calls them anyway. And then in week two, we asked the question, is it true that God just wants you to be happy? What's the answer? No, of course not. God wants much more for you. He actually wants you to be a person of character. He wants you to begin to look like him, to be people who actually care for others, right? And sometimes you can be happy and and being a good person, and sometimes uh, your happiness might actually harm others if you're not careful. I love the way um, Paul Rasmussen puts it. He's the senior pastor at Highland Park and Dallas, uh, United Methodist Church. It was Chantal and I's home church when we lived down there for school. 
Uh, He says it like this. He says, we too often fall prey to the lie that possessions plus peaceful circumstances plus thrilling experiences plus perfect appearance equals happiness. Isn't that ridiculous? Isn't that how we live? Right? No, no, no. Of course, God wants more for us than to just be happy. It's more than that. So the way to happiness, maybe you don't know this, and some people find it odd, but it's actually holiness. Holiness is the pathway to happiness. It's a byproduct. If you have good relationships with people, if you're in right relationship with God, you're in right relationship with the others, happiness actually pours out all around you, all the time. It's just a byproduct of the life that God has given you. God wants you to be happy. He really does, but not just happy. Because when you focus on happiness, things fall apart. But when you focus on holiness, you're amazed at how things will often come together. And then last week we asked the question, is it true that God won't give you more than you can handle? Well, there's all kinds of problems with that. First of all, it sort of assumes that God's given you bad stuff, right? So the phrase God won't give you implies wrongly that God is the one giving you more than you can handle. And that's not true. From cradle to grave, we are created to need God and one another. We have more than we can handle all the time. Nobody raised ourselves, right? We're not Mowgli in the jungle, right? We, we actually need one another raised by parents and grandparents and neighbors and friends, You know, the way we're made, God never expected any of us to handle life on our own. Never. We're made for one another. So when struggles come that are more than you can handle, and they will come, come to all of us, God calls others in to help. And so one of the things I asked you last week is to think about, you know, who's around you when you need help? And as you look around you, who needs help? That's our work. That's our co-work with God. And so then this week we, we do come to this sort of uh, rascally question of, is it true that you get what you deserve? Well, I hope not. I hope not. And one of my favorite stories about Mother Teresa is uh, she was being interviewed, and uh, for some reason somebody was uh, saying some things that weren't very nice about her, which I can't imagine. Um, but they were, so the, the reporter said to, to Mother Teresa, they said, do you, what do you think about these people that are saying these things about you? To which she looked at him and said, oh, son, if they really knew me, they could say much worse. Now, that's a person that's self-aware, right? She knows where she is in relationship to perfection with God Almighty. Now, part of this thinking about you get what you deserve, it comes from uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, right? And in Hinduism and Buddhism, the sum of a person's actions decides their fate in the future, it's called karma. Now, that's a really big concept, and there's a lot more to that um, because for, for many, that includes this life and the one before that you don't know about or that you may remember, you may not. And so there's, there's a big piece of that. But it kind of is a holdover into um, our life. But it's not Christian. It's not out of our tradition. And so the world then does actually operate on a you-get-what-you-deserve mentality. It really does. You know, that's... That's how you get um, the meritocracy that we live in. That's how you look at how people are measured in their jobs. Uh, Chris Murray, who's a songwriter, um, I don't know his uh, work well, but I did come across this line that he wrote. He says, what you deserve will be down to you and you alone. Is that true? Not in our faith, it's not. Not by a long shot, because in the New Testament, Jesus actually teaches the opposite. The exact opposite of what the world says is true. So what does the Bible say about 
this concept. I want to share three stories with you real quickly. Um, I think they, they all prove the point. So what does the Bible say? Well, one of my, and, and these are all very wonderful stories. Uh, that I, I just love these stories. And the first is one you may have uh, learned in Bible school. Um, it's a song about a wee little man. Anybody know who that is? Yeah, you all know Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus entered Jericho, right, just outside Jerusalem, and was passing through it. A man was there named, say it with me, Zacchaeus. And he was a what? Now, if we were to melodrama, you'd hear, dun, dun, dun. Right? Because tax collectors were the worst, right? Because they are in cahoots with Rome. The chief tax collector means he's the worst of the worst. Right? And he was rich. People didn't like that either. And he was rich because he took it from them. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he couldn't. And because he's short, he goes ahead, climbs a sycamore tree, and Jesus was going to pass that way. He wanted to see him. Now, it's hard for us to get our minds around this, so I just want to have a little fun uh, with you. Think of a profession that you most despise, and then think of the worst one of those people. Okay? You're like, well, I don't think badly about anyone. Yes, you do. You do. Think about it. Now, just for fun, I looked at the rankings of people who are most loved and most hated. Right? Now, take it for what you will. I don't know anything about ResumeHelp.com. Okay? But this is what they found out. First of all, and this is interesting to me, 77% of people surveyed believe that judging someone simply based on their profession is acceptable. Yeah, we like to say no, but you do it. Oh, you're a doctor. Oh, you're whatever it is, right? So, I mean, think about that. That means you've you got to ask yourself, do I judge people on what they do? They tell me what they do, and I sort of have an idea of who they are. Don't ask a lot of questions after that. So, who do you think is the most loved profession? Now, this kind of surprised me. There's two. They're tied. And, and the way they did this was they said, at what, you know, do you approve of these people? Are these people that you really love? And 74% of folks said that they actually do appreciate, love, support doctors and teachers. Yeah, teachers, you feeling it these days? And like, they have not been to a school board meeting in Oklahoma lately. But they, I mean, you're doing well, doctors and teachers. Congratulations. Now, below that, the, the ones that came in at the bottom... Um, I don't know if you would say they're most hated or not. That's how they broke it down. One of them surprised me. The other did not. One of them you will know. The other I was like, really? The most hated professions are insurance brokers. I know. And politicians. Everybody's like, well, yeah, we saw that coming. Right? And I don't know. I mean, maybe you just on the wrong end of the insurance deal. I, you know, like I said, it's resumehelp.com. Do with it what you will. But here's the thing. We, you know, so you got that person, you got your profession, you got the worst of the worst of those. Zacchaeus is worse. Whoever you have in your head, they thought of Zacchaeus as worse. They just did. He was the very worst person they could think of. And what does Jesus do? He infuriates them, these really good law-abiding citizens, because he included people who had wronged them. It wasn't just that he had done wrong somewhere. It's that he had taken their family money and given it to their oppressors. And Jesus says, I'm coming to your house. Which meant, I'm going to be family with you. We're going to eat together. 
And Elijah's going to be at the table, the great prophet. So when Jesus came to the place, he looks up and he says to Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, say it with me, for I must stay at your house today. And everybody in the crowd was like, Jesus says, what? What? That cannot be right. So he does. He hurries down. I mean, happy to welcome him, of course. And all who began to what? Grumble. They were not happy that Jesus accepted and included people. They were outraged. Because he wasn't going to get what he deserved. And people said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Far from God. And so Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I'll give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone or anything, I'll pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, say it with me, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Abraham? The head of the faith. The greatest of the great. I mean, he and Moses. See, when it, when it comes to Jesus, particularly the religious leaders, they hated Jesus because he did not give Zacchaeus what he deserved. They thought he would, and he didn't. And then Jesus goes on to say, for the Son of Man, a name that he uses for himself, came to seek out and to save, what? The lost. Not those who should be there, but those who don't have a clue how to get there. That's how good God is. And by the way, that's good news for us. Now, the problem is that we want justice for those who've wronged us and mercy for ourselves. And if that story wasn't bad enough, we actually come to another story. And worse is that we actually want to punish people we don't even know. So they get what they deserve. I'm, I'm always amazed and saddened that when there's going to be a, a, an execution, that hundreds of people will show up and march and rail that this person needs to die, this person needs to die, knowing fully well they did not even know that person. I mean, you do understand how messed up that is. They didn't wrong them even. They're just ready to see somebody die. So in John 8, it's, all, it's always been this way, unfortunately. Early in the morning, the scripture says, Jesus came again to the temple and all the people came to him, sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious folks, brought a woman. Right? It just wasn't just anybody, it was actually the, the religious folks. They bring a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them. You know how terrifying that would be? Because, of course, she could be stoned in the public square. That was the law. They could kill her right there on the spot. And so they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? What do you say? Can you imagine what she must be thinking or feeling or worrying, wondering if she's going to see 10 minutes from now? Stones laying at the feet between she and Jesus. Elizabeth Wang is the, uh, the late Elizabeth Wang is the painter of this painting. I recommend her stuff to you. It's beautiful. And what's interesting is in this story, according to later manuscripts, Jesus wrote on the ground the sins of each of the men. No wonder they left. And that's why he says, oh, those of you who don't have any sin, you can throw the first stone. But the problem is he's just written out their sin before them, which they know to be true. Right, so they, they said this, the religious folks did, to test Jesus, to see what kind of leader he was, to entrap him, and so that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, Bob, embezzlement. 
And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up so they could see it. He said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin to be first to throw a stone at her. And I suppose a couple sort of walk off because their names had been written in the sand by the one who knows every heart. And a couple others stayed. And Jesus is like, really? Oh my gosh. So he kneels down and starts writing out their names and their sins. Because sometimes, isn't it interesting, we don't learn from other people's mistakes. It's like we have to take it on the head ourselves. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Where are they? Where'd they go? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, well, neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. And you, you know what you don't see in this story? A huge confession from her. You don't see her throwing herself at Jesus' feet, saying, oh, Lord, please forgive me. No, his, his call is well before shaming her. His call of forgiveness and freedom and salvation is not based on her. It's based on him. On who he is. I see, this is the thing that is both beautiful and terrifying in our world. Because Jesus doesn't give Zacchaeus or the woman what they deserve. What does Jesus give them? Grace. He gives them grace. And friends, that's what our faith is all about. In United Methodism, we are all about grace upon grace upon grace because that's who God is. That's the God we serve. That's the God we love. And if we didn't understand this through these stories of Jesus' life and teaching and healing, we should certainly get it by the end of his life. We, you do remember, and this is, this is problematic. We have a beautiful cross here made by Emmett Carter of our church. And it's lovely and it's great and I love it. There's only one problem. Jesus wasn't crucified alone. And so often we forget that. There were three crosses, not one. And we, and we lose some of the power of what was going on in that moment. Because two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Jesus is placed right in the middle of the worst of the worst. Because that's how he was meant to be portrayed. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals. One on his right and one on his left. And there was nothing worse when it came to physical pain. Paul Rasmussen says, nothing worse when it came to public or spiritual embarrassment to be splayed out with hands nailed to wood, feet nailed to the wood, a crown of thorns on Jesus' head, blood dripping. It's easy to forget that when we have such a beautiful cross before us. And Jesus is sandwiched in between two criminals, the worst of the worst. These were not pickpockets, friends. They were the worst of the worst. That's what crucifixion was reserved for. And Jesus is in the middle of all that. Crowds are walking by, all three of them. They are spitting on them. And Jesus looks up and he prays. And what does he pray? He does not pray, give these people responsible for my crucifixion what they deserve. It's not what he prays. When we were working on this on Wednesday, uh, Dr. Grell reminded me, you know, uh, crosses would have been eye level with the people being crucified. They were meant to be a deterrent for anyone to ever cross Rome. 
So Jesus didn't pray, God, give them what they deserve because they deserve it. No. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And now, one of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him, saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Like, if you are who you say you are, well, let's, let's get out. Without one ounce of evidence of any good deed, Jesus promises paradise to one of the criminals. The other one says back to that guy. He rebukes him and he says, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed have been condemned justly for, say it with me, we are getting what we deserve. That idea has been around a long time for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, you will. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, to, to be fair to the text, paradise at, at that time and that way was a term for the place of the righteous dead prior to resurrection. Are you kidding me? Jesus just said this man is righteous. If he's going to promise him paradise, this is where the righteous go. Not the worst of the worst. This is basically resting in the bosom of Abraham, in the best of the best. Again, uh, Pastor Paul would say, Jesus in that moment addresses a criminal who could no longer do a single good work. There's nothing this criminal can do to deserve a blessing from God. And yet, Jesus looks at a guilty, sinful man, and this is what he says. Truly, I tell you today, say with me, you will not get what you deserve. Rather, you will be with me in paradise. That's our God. That is our good and wonderful and merciful God. Jesus came from heaven to show us that we don't get what we deserve. We get grace. Amen? We get grace. And Paul puts an exclamation point on it in Ephesians 2. He says, God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Say it with me, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is what? The gift of God. It's a gift, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And so when we come to communion, friends, we come to remember that Jesus suffered so that we don't get what we deserve. When I was a little boy growing up in my dad's churches, we would do communion once a month. And we had a very long liturgy, and part of that liturgy was a prayer called the Prayer of Humble Access. And it goes like this. We do not presume to come this thy table, O merciful Lord. Will you read the rest of it with me? Trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to partake of this sacrament of thy Son, Jesus Christ, that we may walk in newness of life, may grow into his likeness, and may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. Now, I don't know of a single United Methodist Church that still uses the prayer of humble access every time. We, we use it here on Nash Wednesday. And I, and I remember as a kid thinking, I, 
Like, I can't even gather up the crumbs under Jesus' table. Like, I'm not that bad. And maybe when, when we do a confession, like, you know, we've not loved our neighbor with our whole heart. We have not heard the cry of the needy, these things that we say in confession. You might think to yourself, well, I don't really like that. I don't like saying that because I'm, you know, I'm not that bad. Well, friends, if, if that's what comes to your mind, I'm not that bad, then you've fallen into the trap of you get what you deserve. That's what that is. That's where that comes from. Because it's all about grace. You see, all of us, you and I, each and every one of us, we are the thief on the cross. And we give thanks that Jesus is giving us something that we do not deserve. We don't deserve it. Because he's so good. Amen? He's that good. Okay, so our action step is this. It's very, very simple. In the same way that we know that the thief on the cross is promised paradise, you and I, all we have to say, friends, is Jesus, remember me. That's it. Jesus, remember me. And then trust that what the Bible says about Jesus is true, that his goodness is so good. He's not going to give you what you deserve. He's going to give you what you need. Because he knows you that well. He's not going to give you what you deserve. He's going to give you what you need. And that is good news, my friends. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.